0: Let's pray. Your love is great God and you have loved us in many ways. You have found multiple access points uh, to demonstrate your love to us. For each of those and for all of those, we are grateful. For the ways that you have loved us and shown us your love through your word, we thank you We ask that you would help us to be attentive to your word uh, now as we read and think and meditate together. Ask that as my words are true to your word, that they would be taken to heart. If my words in any way deviate from your word, may they be quickly forgotten. We pray in Christ the Lord. Amen. So we're looking at Mark's gospel this evening, just a couple of verses. Mark begins his gospel differently than the other gospel writers, Matthew, Luke, and John. Mark moves quickly uh, into Jesus and Jesus' story after a brief introduction of who John was, John the Baptist. Jesus was Presbyterian. John was Baptist. (laughs) Mark tells us what John wore. Mark tells us what John ate. Mark tells us what John did, that he baptized people. Mark tells us what John preached And this was the central focus of John's message. Verse 4. After me comes one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And then John baptized Jesus. Not worthy of untying his sandals, but in obedience to his call, baptizes Jesus, which ends up being a sort of Uh, first step in Jesus coming out public ministry and his de facto coronation. And then Mark tells his readers about the central event of Jesus' preparation for ministry and another way in which the God-man Jesus fully identifies with humanity. The Spirit of God sends Jesus into the wilderness for 40 days to be tempted by Satan Whereby he again, in a different way, fully identifies with our humanity and gives us part of the reason that we celebrate Lent for 40 days. And then comes these truly, truly pivotal words in the Gospel of Mark at verse 14. After John the Baptist was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee and began his public ministry, proclaiming the good news of God. It's a pivot point in Mark's Gospel. And verse 15 explains the good news that Jesus proclaimed. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. And here Jesus makes two indicative statements And two imperative statements. Jesus has two announcements. And he makes two appeals. We'll talk about them in order. First, Jesus declares the time has come. John's time is coming to a close. Jesus' time is just opening up. John's ministry is all but done. Jesus' ministry is just beginning. Something that has been long awaited is beginning. All history has waited for this thing that has now arrived. This is the dawn of a new era. Everything is about to change. Everything is changing. That which the Jews and the world, and by extension, you and I, had been waiting for, longing for, had arrived. It was, if we look back, the pivot point in history. And this has implications for us in our lives today as well, which we'll talk about in a few minutes. The time has come. And then the kingdom of God has come near. And we're interested in the kingdom of God, often out of curiosity, but also because selfishly, we want a part of that. And Jesus was interested in the kingdom of God, you know, because we've talked about it so much over the last six months, that Jesus talked more about the kingdom of God than he did anything else by far. It was his focus, his fascination And this fact must not be lost on us. We think about the kingdom of God largely in future terms, in terms of the reality that we will enter into or receive or inherit when we are done with these bodies, if and as we are in Christ. But Jesus, our teacher and our Lord, said that the kingdom of God has come near It's present tense. It's this continuing tense. It's something that has just been done. It's here among us, with us, around us, in us. And so what is this kingdom? George Eldon Ladd, who wrote a, a, a kind of a seminal book on the kingdom of God, wrote, when Jesus proclaims the kingdom of God, he announces that the decisive display of God's ruling power over the world is about to be unfurled. The reign of God is not a spatial category, but rather it is a dynamic event in which God intervenes powerfully in human affairs to achieve his unfading purposes. God's kingdom is God's rule in this world and God's rule in people's lives in tangible, palpable, touchable ways. Dallas Willard has pointed out what we should have known, what should have been obvious to us in the Lord's Prayer, that God's kingdom is the realm or the reality in which God's will is done. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. In Hebrew, those are parallel, complementary, say the same thing verses. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. On earth... As it is in heaven or the heavens. God's kingdom is the explicit activity. The active activity of God in our lives and in our world. And Jesus' listeners would have been somewhat familiar with the idea of God's reign. And Jesus' announcement would have awakened in their minds all sorts of images and motifs and hopes that had been dormant or that had been asleep. Many people would have understood the arrival of the kingdom of God to mean that God was visiting the people to bring grace and judgment, judgment and grace, to put things right in the world, to vanquish evil and the malevolent powers, to oust the rulers of the world and at that time the Romans, to establish the kingdom specifically of Israel, to conquer sin, to eradicate sickness, and to vindicate the righteous among whom on earth they were. But the fact that Jesus spends so much time over the next 15 chapters, over the rest of the Gospel of Mark, telling people and describing for people and illustrating in various ways for people what the kingdom of God really was like suggests that maybe Jesus had a different understanding of God's kingdom than most people. Regardless, Mark is clear, the kingdom of God has come near. It's in the next pew. It's right in front of you. It's right behind you. It's with us. It's available. Because the king has come near. And Jesus, a person, all of a sudden, for the first time, not only in their lives, but in human history, could hear and see and touch the kingdom and the king. And as Mark's first-time readers will eventually discover and what we already know is that Jesus will rule as king and he's not going to rule with a gold scepter but he will rule through two beams of wood nailed together in the shape of a cross. It was not the kingdom that people were expecting in so many ways. And though we hear and sometimes use the language of building the kingdom, we sing some songs that have that language in them we talk among each other, we have heard that language, building the kingdom. We don't build the kingdom. We don't bring about the kingdom and especially not through our own paltry offerings. Nor must we think that we are responsible for advancing the kingdom through our own programs. God establishes the kingdom. Jesus ushers in the kingdom. The Holy Spirit of God reveals the kingdom. But at the same time, we do have a part. Jesus has given us two indicatives the time has come, it's now. The kingdom has come near. And now Jesus gives us two imperatives two things that we can do and two things that he calls us to do and two things that he invites us to do. Repent and believe the good news. Repent and believe. And he is the good news. And one gets the impression, for example, because of the urgency with which Jesus seems to speak about these things, that these two actions are important for a person in coming to enter the kingdom of God or to experience the kingdom of God. Repent and believe. Believe and repent. And we must not undervalue either of these, either individually or as a pair, because they go together. They went together for Jesus. They go together. John Calvin asked and then answered, Can true repentance exist without faith? In other words, without believing. By no means, he answers. But although they cannot be separated, they ought to be distinguished. Can true repentance exist without faith? In other words, believing. By no means. The contemporary Reformed theologian Louis Burkhoff kind of amplified this thought of Calvin's, and he wrote uh, these words that are on the cover of your bulletin True repentance never exists except in conjunction with faith. While on the other hand, wherever there is true faith, there is also, always, necessarily, real repentance. The two are but different aspects of the same turning. A turning away from sin in the direction of God. The two cannot be separated. They are simply complementary parts of the same process. The two cannot be separated. They are simply complementary parts of the same process. But maybe this has not been a given for us. In my experience at least, there has been a heavy emphasis on a discipleship or a Christianity of belief, but not so much repentance. I don't know if that's been anyone else's experience. A heavy emphasis on belief, but not so much on repentance. These two things that for Jesus seem to go together. To believe in the scriptures, you probably know, is more than cognitive or mental assent. Rather, it is to willfully put one's faith in something or someone. In the words of Christopher Marshall, rational belief is essentially involuntary. And think about that, and you'll, I think you'll agree that that's true. Rational belief. Is essentially involuntary. A person cannot arbitrarily choose to believe on the spot. It is something that happens to him or her in light of the evidence. Trust, however, is voluntary. And he makes this distinction between these terms in English. Trust, however, is voluntary. It is an act of the will. Or again, belief can exist without immediately affecting one's conduct, whereas trust requires certain consequent actions in order to exist. Rational belief is sterile and powerless if it does not lead to trust that affects the way a person lives. And believing Jesus or having faith in Jesus or trusting Jesus, these are all the same word in Greek, just one word, pistis, that is translated in different places in different ways. And most often by us as faith or belief. But I think the richer meaning and the one that we've lost and that we need the most is this trust. Believing Jesus, having faith in Jesus, trusting Jesus, and trusting that everything that Jesus said was true and that his way and his instructions about life and for life are true and best is inseparably connected to repentance. Believing not just in Jesus cognitively but trusting him as a person and trusting what he said and trusting that that was true is inseparably connected to this repentance enterprise. Which has has historically been a, a big part of Ash Wednesday in particular and Lent in general. Repentance and then the things that roll out of it. Confession, sorrow, mourning, grief, ashes. In my experience, in my growing up, uh, repentance was always a negative word. It had negative connotations in my mind. See the pointing finger from the evangelist or the pastor or the preacher or someone in authority. But the word repentance in Greek, metanoia, simply means to think differently, to think differently. It does, first of all, have primarily intellectual or cognitive uh, implications. But it goes on from there to, uh, to involve the whole person, if we're true to the Word. According to Scripture, repentance is wholly an inward act. It shouldn't be confounded with outward acts at first, And yet, it always leads to outward things. Things that are a part of repentance by association. Repentance means to change the way we think, to change our mind, to go a different direction. uh, Buying into the Hebrew to turn and turn around, to go the other way. We can think of repentance as a pair of railroad tracks And repentance calls us like an engine to get back on the tracks. And you know when a train has gotten off of the tracks, how much trouble it is in. If it hasn't already crashed, it is headed for that momentarily. And God calls us in repentance to come back to the center, to turn back to the middle, to get back on the tracks where the train is safe and where we can be well. In his little book, The Shack, William Paul Young wrote, sin is its own punishment, devouring a person from the inside. And there's just a lot of truth in that. God isn't out to punish or condemn us, but he wants us to repent because it's the good and safe place. It's the place of shalom. Brennan Manning has written, repentance is not what we do In order to be forgiven it is what we do because we have been forgiven repentance is not what we do so that we may be forgiven but repentance is what we do because we've been forgiven and if we look at just these two verses of Scripture we see that the time has come the kingdom of God has come near and then repent The invitation to repentance comes after the bursting forth of the king and the kingdom, making himself fully available to us. Grace precedes having to do anything at all. And so when we hear the call of repentance, we should hear it coming from one who has loved us first, who is love and who promises to love us unconditionally And who calls us to repentance because he loves us. These words from Deborah Newman are on the front of your bulletin as well. That I find helpful here. When we won't let ourselves be held in the midst of our messes by God who loves us and made us. We miss the unspeakable joy of knowing that we are truly his beloved. In other words, when we hide and deny And don't want to confess or acknowledge the things of which we need to repent. And to which and about which he is inviting us to repent. It's us who miss out. It's us who miss out. On getting clean, on coming clean, on being honest. And having the help of the grace of God to get things right and good. I was reflecting uh, this morning on our baptism questions, the questions that we use in the Presbyterian Church, at least for baptism, and they go like this. The first question is, who is your Savior and Lord? And the response is Jesus or Jesus Christ. The second question is, do you trust him? Not do you believe in him, not do you have faith, but do you trust him who is Savior and Lord? Do you trust him? And then third, after that, after acknowledging the one who saves, after acknowledging that we trust or believe, then comes the question, do you renounce or turn from sin? In other words, repent of everything that separates you from God. And do you turn to God, relying on God's grace in Jesus? Do you? The invitation to repent comes after The gift of salvation and the assurance that we have a Savior and a God who loves us. So when we enter into Lent through Ash Wednesday and are called to repent, remember who it is who invites us and what He intends for us and who He is. And the third question is not a past tense, did you repent or do you repent today? But it's a present continuing tense. Because we're human beings and need to continually be about repentance. And so repentance doesn't belong to Ash Wednesday only. And it doesn't even belong only to the season of Lent. Though that may be when the church has spoken about it most. But it belongs to every day of the year in our life with God. And in a relationship with a God who loves us. And who has what is best in mind for us. And so the time has come, today is the day, the kingdom of God has come near. Believe the good news, trust the good news, and as the Lord leads you, whatever that looks like, repent, turn, return. Let's pray. Help us, God, to do what you have called us to do and what through your spirit and your grace you enable us to do, that we might live, that we might experience your abundance, that your joy might be complete in us, and that you might be glorified, in Jesus' name.